Tenakote, tenakote, tenakote katoa. Welcome to this event at the National Library of New Zealand, marking 100 years of radio in Aotearoa. I think I was asked to do this because they thought I might remember the beginning of it all. <laughs> but I don't. Not quite. As we know, a professor of physics at the University of Otago, Dr Robert Jack, broadcast New Zealand's first radio programme on November the 17th, 1921. And within a decade, the country had nearly 50 licensed stations. John A. Lee, for one, was excited... In 1934, he wrote, Labour has a plan, in which he said New Zealand could be the centre of a new civilization, a new socialist state that would once again cause New Zealand to inspire the world. Bless him. Among that new government's measures, the nationalisation of the Reserve Bank, the state housing scheme, a Christmas bonus for the unemployed, a state-owned radio network was established and parliamentary debates broadcast for the first time. Meanwhile, C.G. Scrimger, Uncle Scrim, formed the radio Church of the Friendly Road and became Controller General of Commercial Radio in 1936. It's tempting, you know, to see the battle lines drawn right there, socialist state radio and conservative Christianish commercial radio but radio has always been a much broader church than that, as I think we'll hear. Audio historian and researcher Sarah Johnston is here to remind us of a simpler time. No written words, no pictures, just the sound of a story when radio was the hearth around which we gathered. Please welcome Sarah Johnston. A big thank you to Natonga, the National Library and RNZ for organising this celebration of the start of radio in New Zealand 100 years ago tonight. Um, it really is something to celebrate and so thank you all for coming along to, to share it with us. So tonight is um, my presentation is going to be something of a game of two halves. I'll talk first about that broadcast, the first broadcast of, of voice and music by radio and the start of radio broadcasting in this country. And then I'm also going to speak about a research project that I'm working on, listening to radio recordings made of New Zealand's forces overseas during World War II. So we'll cover about 30 years of radio history in about 30 minutes and we'll leave some time for questions at the end. So I've always been a huge fan of radio. I mean, ever since my childhood in the 1970s, listening to the weekend children's request sessions on a Sunday morning, and then as a teenager, eating my breakfast with morning report coming out of the family transistor beside me. As a radio journalist, I became one of those voices coming out of the transistor and worked for RNZ and Deutsche Welle in Germany. And there I experienced the power of voices that could not only come out of the air, but could come out of the air from the other side of the world. Later as a sound archivist working with the Radio New Zealand archives, I learned that that power of the voice doesn't diminish with time. Yet listening to a voice from 80 years ago can still move you. 
and it can still transport you, not just through space, but also through time. Sound, to me, has a power that in many ways seems quite different to that of looking at visual images or even moving images from the past. You know, sound has that ability to, to give you goosebumps, and I think that is really something quite powerful. So 100 years ago tonight, an experimental radio broadcast took place which signalled the arrival of this new technology, radio broadcasting in Aotearoa. In time, radio would transform many aspects of New Zealand society and usher in many changes, which have included competing media such as television and now, of course, the internet. But radio continues to adapt and survive. So this evening, we've said we're going to listen to the past, but I feel I should start with the disclaimer. There are no known recordings of that very first broadcast, November 17, 1921. In fact, there are no known recordings, as far as we know, of any radio broadcasts in New Zealand up until 1935. And this is simply because no radio broadcaster, again, as far as we know, uh, had, had recording equipment until the National Broadcasting Service purchased uh, disc recorders in 1935. So up until that time, all radio was simply broadcast live to air and not recorded or archived in any form. And the exception, of course, to this was commercially recorded music. That had been imported to New Zealand from overseas as 78 RPM discs. And that's what New Zealand's first radio broadcast of speech and music 100 years ago largely consisted of. So tonight we can at least get a feel for how that first broadcast must have sounded. The man responsible, as Kim mentioned, for the beginning of radio in Aotearoa was Professor Robert Jack. He was from the physics department of Otago University. He'd been there since 1914. He'd immigrated from Scotland and he'd been experimenting with this new wireless technology for some time. Marconi had invented wireless telegraphy around the turn of the century and that was already being used and had been used for some time uh, to send messages via Morse code. But transmitting voice and music by wireless had begun to be tested in several countries. The world's first radio station had started broadcasting in the United States in 1920. Professor Jack himself had been picking up some overseas broadcasts. He had heard a boxing match from the United States. And on a trip back to Scotland in 1920, he purchased some surplus military equipment which was left over from World War I. And that enabled him to take his wireless radio experiments to the next step, which was the successful transmission of voice and music. He made some test broadcasts from one room to another at the university and told the Otago Daily Times about his experiments in an article from August 1921. Professor Jack was really quite prescient in describing the potential of radio to overcome New Zealand's isolation. Speaking about concerts and musical performances, he said, why should the people of New Zealand not be allowed to hear the best things going? No country in the world stands to benefit more than New Zealand by thus having the disadvantages of its isolation removed. So listening to wireless in the first two decades of the 20th century was a very niche hobby. For a start, you had to know Morse code, because that was what you were listening to. Um, so to make any sense of what you were hearing, you needed to know Morse. 
Then you had to build your own wireless set, often called a crystal set, uh, and you had to submit the circuit and the plans of it to the Post and Telegraph office for approval. So you had to jump through quite a few hoops to get a licence which would then enable you to operate a wireless receiver, or what we would call a radio today. The government was really not keen on amateurs using wireless telegraphy and wasn't trying to encourage it in any way. You know, it was only a few years since the end of World War I, and so they felt that this new technology could be dangerous in the wrong hands. So if you'd gone through all those hoops, you had your licence, you had built your crystal set, you'd be listening with headphones on to more signals and static. So it was a fairly esoteric pastime. Professor Jack's own records about his tests are a little bit um, thin, they're a little bit scanty. But fortunately, he was collaborating with two radio enthusiasts, Frank and Brenda Bell. They were a brother and sister who had a radio receiver on their family farm at Shag Valley in inland Otago. And it's thanks to them that we have confirmation of the details of Professor Jack's test on the 17th of November. Bobby Jack, as his students called him, never to his face because by all accounts he was a fairly austere Scots academic. He played a number of pieces of music in this test broadcast, but we have one in particular that the details were noted down by uh, Frank and Brenda Bell, and so that's gone down in the record books as the first song ever played on radio in New Zealand. Hello My Dearie is its name. And it was recorded on the Columbia label in 1917 by Cicely Debenham and Bertram Wallace. It was composed for a London stage show called Zigzag, which had been popular with soldiers who were on leave from fighting in France and Belgium during World War I. It then crossed the Atlantic and featured in New York in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1917. So lyrically, this song takes as its theme another newish technology, this time from the late 19th century, the telephone, with the singer placing a call to a gentleman friend and suggesting something of a hookup or a romantic rendezvous. So it seems a slightly saucy number for this um, austere Scots physics professor to have chosen, but that's the song he played. So that we have a copy of this historic recording at all is due to the efforts of two gentlemen who for many years were the keepers of our radio history for many decades. And I'd like to pay tribute to Peter Downs and Jim Sullivan, both former Radio New Zealand employees, and many of you will recall listening to them over the years. Peter and Jim knew that the uh, title of this first song played on Radio New Zealand was Hello My Dearie. But in a pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-Spotify, pre-Shazam era, they had to hunt for quite some time to identify what the song actually was and then to get a copy of this 1917 recording. Now, as I said, we have no actual uh, recording of Professor Jack. But what we do have is in 1971, RNZ's predecessor, the NZBC, recreated the first broadcast for a radio documentary to mark the 50th anniversary of the event. They found a suitably Scots gentleman and using Professor Jack's original equipment, which is still housed at Otago Museum, they created this recording, which gives something of the flavour of that first broadcast. So let's listen now to what we would have heard coming through the airwaves from Dunedin if we had tuned in 
100 years ago tonight.
Transmission from Otago University, Professor Jack speaking. The gramophone record just played was Hello My Dearie. I shall now play the record In the Combat from Il Trovatore and it is sung by Madame Violetta and Mr Ernest Pike. New Zealand radio was on its way. The average New Zealander, uh, as I said, would have been fairly unaware of that momentous event taking place. Bobby Jack's initial test broadcasts were only heard by a pretty small niche group of early adopters, wireless enthusiasts. Among them, of course, as I said, were Frank and Brenda Bell, these radio hams living about an hour away from Dunedin, where Professor Jack was transmitting. And Brenda Bell, bless her, noted details of their reception that night in her diary. She wrote, We got some items from the professor, including one song, Hello My Dearie. So that's how we know what was played that night. Some 30 years later, in a radio interview in the 1950s, she recalled that night and relays how they got that exciting news through to Otago University to let the professor know that his broadcast had been heard. We were none of us exactly pop fans, but we did recognise one tune, and I had to try and get a contact through to Professor Jack to tell him that it actually was being received, because it was a toss-up if it would be audible here or not. And uh, to make contact, the telegraph and telephone offices were closed, being after five, And the only contact I could get was through the doctor's rooms in Palmerston. And the doctor had a nurse. And I got hold of the nurse. She could ring Dunedin, presumably on some other line. And I told her that we had received these signals, and I gave the necessary jargon for it, and asked her to tell Professor Jack that we had distinctly heard the music, Hello, My Dearie. It was a quite well-known song in those days. That was all right, but I also heard Nurse at the telephone calling up the university, and her version of it was, and Miss Bell says she heard you say, Hello, My Dearie. (laughs) Professor Jack was not the sort of person to whom one said that sort of thing, and I always rather cherished the recollection of that particular scene. As you can probably tell from uh, Brenda Bell's voice, she was imminently suited to be on radio uh, in the 1950s, and she was. She used to feature quite frequently on radio in, in Dunedin. So Professor Jack continued his test transmissions. He got permission from the Post and Telegraph office to continue them uh, two hours every Wednesday and Saturday night for the rest of 1921 up until Christmas. And this was reported in the local press. 
Further afield in Wellington and Auckland, there were radio enthusiasts who weren't aware of Jack's experiments, and they were very excited because they were settling down for an evening listening to more signals, and suddenly they heard a voice and music coming through the air. One of them was Clive Drummond. He was a young post office telegraphist in Wellington, and he would go on to become one of our best-known early radio announcers. He had a long career on 2YA in Wellington, which became RNZ National today. Later in life, he recalled the moment in late 1921 when he unexpectedly discovered one of the Professor Jack's broadcasts one evening. One night, I stuck it on, you see, around about half past eight as years, and I listened very hard. Come into the morning. <laughs> I can't tell you what I said, but I nearly went out through the roof, as you can imagine, hearing such a lot about radio and listening to Morse, and that's the extent of our radio experience. The only sound you heard was static and Morse. But to hear a voice, well... The realisation of the potential of radio began to spread. Word was reaching New Zealand of these overseas broadcasts and enthusiasts like Clive Drummond, who we heard there, began to form radio societies and associations. In October 1922, under the patronage of Professor Jack, the Otago Radio Association set up New Zealand's first radio station. It was known by several different call signs and names. For many years it was 4XD, but it was the first radio station in Australasia and only the fifth in the world. Its broadcasts were ahead of the BBC by five weeks and it's still broadcasting today as Radio Dunedin, one of the world's longest-running radio stations. They'll be celebrating their centenary on air next year, which is an amazing achievement. So the other people who realised the potential of radio were business owners, particularly retailers who sold gramophone records and radio stores that sold radio parts. They saw the opportunities that this presented and began to set up low-power stations on their premises. Charles Forrest, who had a shop, the International Electric Company, which sold radio parts, began Wellington's first radio broadcasts in 1922 from a studio on the roof of O'Neill's Buildings, which are still today on the corner of Tory Street in Courtney Place. And similar small stations opened elsewhere. By the end of 1922, there were three stations in Dunedin, two in Wellington, and one each in Christchurch and Auckland. And 572 New Zealanders had obtained radio listening permits. In January 1923, the government moved to further regulate this new industry. New licences were introduced, five shillings a year to operate a receiving set, i.e. a radio, and two pounds to broadcast matter of an educative or entertaining nature. That's a direct quote. Uh, no advertising was permitted, although stations could say where they were broadcasting from and who was providing the music you were listening to, which was, of course, usually your local music store. Uh, the Radio Record, a weekly magazine, began publication, a forerunner of, of the Listener magazine, and it let listeners know what they could hear and how they could tune in and get the best reception. In most cases, broadcasts were still only a few hours a night and only on certain nights of the week, but the ability to listen to music from out of thin air grew in appeal. Lionel Slade was a member of the Christchurch Radio Society. They set up that city's first station, 3AC. 
and here he explains how they helped spread interest in the new medium. People used to laugh at us. In fact, during that time, I used to go around to church bazaars and such like and give demonstrations uh, with radio. That was when 3AC was operating. And uh, people used to look at me and think it was funny getting this stuff from the air and nothing about and that. And when I used to tell people at the end that uh, they were welcome to come up and look around and if they could find a gramophone, they could take it home. Well, you would be surprised. And I used to often tell the parson or whoever it was that had charge of the meeting just what I would say and to watch. And you'd see people come up and they'd go on the stage and they'd look at the radio set and then they'd put their hands in their pocket and just casually wander around the show and uh, look under this table and underneath the stage and that, just to see if they could find a gramophone. Within five years of Professor Jack's first broadcasts, radio was now being promoted as something your family needed to have. The uptake of this new technology was relatively fast. Advertisements appeared in newspapers reading, What is a home without a radio? Your family is missing too much without one. And no longer did you need to have headphones on your clamped to your head to listen. Radios now had a speaker, a horn rather like a gramophone to begin with. But the family could all gather round and listening was now a shared experience. And this begins the heyday of radio as the entertainment hub of the home. There were now 4,700 radio licences in the country. The radio stations remained in private ownership and income was restricted by the limitations on advertising. In 1925, the government entered into an agreement with the Radio Broadcasting Company, which was based in Christchurch. Their contract was for five years, and they were to operate four radio stations in the main centres, for which they would receive a share of the licence fees that the government was charging. These eventually operated under the call signs 1YA in Auckland and 2YA, 3YA and 4YA in the other main centres. In Wellington, the transmitter and masts were erected on Mount Victoria in 1927, and you can still see that today. While in Auckland, they were on the roof of a Karangahapi Road department store, George Courts. And smaller private stations still continue to operate throughout the country. So what were they broadcasting in the 1920s? Programmes consisted of a lot of music, and mostly it was live performances in the studio by local people, this was the era when most people could sing or play an instrument and people would come along to the studio and perform. A small amount of recorded music was also played. Stations broadcast two or three hours a night, often around 8pm to 10pm. And as I said, they used to have certain days that were silent days where they were not allowed to broadcast at all. Stations took live relays of music from local concert halls or dances and theatres, church broadcasts too. Sports broadcasting began. The first rugby match was covered in May 1926 in Christchurch and the first race meeting, a trotting meeting, was broadcast a week later from Addington. And children's programmes began too, especially when broadcasting hours were expanded into the afternoon. They quickly became very popular with a formula of songs and stories and letters from young listeners. The radio presenters of these shows adopted pseudonyms. They were known as a radio uncle or a radio aunt. 
and one of them became probably our best-known radio personality, Aunt Daisy. Maud Basham began her very long career as a children's radio presenter in the 1920s. The role of Māori on radio at this point was largely as performers. Concerts by local kapahaka were broadcast on 2YA in Wellington by groups like the Petone Māori Entertainers and other groups from Ōtaki. On Waitangi Day 1928, a very elaborate broadcast was staged. This was a three-hour pageant of Māori history. It was one of the first national relays, so it was a programme heard on stations throughout New Zealand and also in Australia. It involved the Prime Minister, who spoke, Māori politicians, Sir Māori Pōmare and Sir Apirana Nata, and a concert party from Whanganui, led by Hamiora Hakopa. This was considered a very big deal, this nationwide programme, and in the days leading up to the broadcast, radio retailers took out newspaper advertising, inviting people who did not yet own radios to come and listen to the broadcast in their premises. The pageant was very well received by listeners and there are glowing reviews of it in the press. The first scheduled programme that used Te Reo Māori on air regularly was broadcast in 1928, 1929 and 1930. It was a lecturette, a 20-minute programme on the correct pronunciation of Te Reo Māori and place names in particular. Henry Stoll, who went by, also went by the name Hare Hongi, was an author, historian and genealogist of Napui descent and he took over the programme, which had been started by a Te speaking Pākehā, J.F. Montague. By 1931, the radio broadcasting company's five-year contract had come to an end, and it was not renewed by the government, which reacquired the YA stations and proposed to run them under the BBC's non-commercial model, with funding coming from licence fees. There were still 36 of the smaller, privately owned B stations, as they were called, in 1931, but they were struggling constantly financially. They had to look for sponsorship and were often funded by donations from their listeners. Eventually, the government moved to purchase most of them and broadcasting was nationalised. In 1935, as uh, we heard, the first Labour government of Michael Joseph Savage came to power and was very enthusiastic about radio. Savage himself saw it as a way for his government to bypass newspapers, whose owners he felt were often more conservative-leaning, and speak directly to the people. New Zealand was the first nation to broadcast parliamentary debates in 1936, and the government also established a commercial network, the ZB stations, in the four main centres. Each of those stations hired a Māori announcer, but their on-air work was sadly restricted to mostly English, with Te being used mainly for greetings. In January 1937, at the opening of station 2YA's new transmitter in Titahi Bay, which made it the most powerful station in the country, Michael Joseph Savage made a speech in which he summed up his belief in the power of this new medium. Radio broadcasting is undoubtedly one of the most revolutionary agencies of modern times. Radio will soon be as necessary for the mind of an active citizen as water is for the human body and will be laid on to every home in a similar way. It is the instrument 
par excellence for unifying the thought of mankind and making possible a real democracy, for training men and women to consider different opinions and so developing that thoughtful tolerance upon which peace and democracy are based. Sadly, Savage's belief in radio's potential to ensure peace was somewhat optimistic, and less than three years later he would again be using radio to broadcast to the nation that we were now at war with the outbreak of World War II. So that was a very quick tour of the first decade or so of radio in New Zealand, and we now find ourselves at the start of World War II. The National Broadcasting Service, which the government set up to run the non-commercial YA stations, was headed by a former academic from Canterbury University College, Professor James Shelley. He suggested to the government in February 1940 that a mobile broadcasting unit be sent overseas with New Zealand's forces. In his proposal, Shelley listed among its proposed activities, this is a quote, to make disc records of events, voices of personalities, eyewitness accounts, etc., for sending to New Zealand to broadcast here and to form part of an historical library of the war for future use. He wrote that the unit's work would have immediate value in maintaining the morale of the troops and the nation by keeping New Zealanders in touch with their men overseas. So that was the start of radio broadcasting heading off to war for the first time. And for the next five years, small teams of broadcasters would travel with New Zealanders through Egypt, Libya, Italy and the Pacific, recording their voices on mobile disc recorders. Disc recording, which cut the sound onto lacquer discs, which looked something like a, a vinyl LP. It was still a fairly new technology, and using these portable recorders meant that radio microphones could start recording outside the studio, and they could then capture the experiences of a much broader range of New Zealanders, rather than just those who had been invited to come into a radio studio, which was still a rather formal and artificial environment. They also were able to, by getting out of the studio, start capturing actuality. New Zealand radio listeners back home could hear the war in reports from the mobile unit broadcasters. These were either broadcast back to New Zealand via the BBC on shortwave radio, or if the recordings weren't particularly time-sensitive, they were shipped back to New Zealand, which could take several weeks. So here's an short excerpt from one of their first recordings. This was made on board a troop ship in August 1940 as the mobile broadcasting unit prepared to depart from Wellington with the third echelon of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Announcer Doug Lawrenson paints a, a sound picture of what he can see, but it's the background sound in this recording that I really love. You can imagine it produces this picture in your mind of the thousands of men arriving on the Wellington wharves by train and boarding the ship. Troops already on board are lining the rails and are cheering their friends as they embark on our ship or the one opposite. Let's switch over to our deck microphone for a moment and listen to them greeting a train which arrives for our other transport. And still the men are coming on board. Hundreds and hundreds of them. All along the wharf, they're lined up, awaiting their turn. Men are embarking at the rate of 10 to 20 a minute. 
and fresh trains continually bring more troops to take up the positions of the ones who already are of our ship's company. It's certainly a great sight to see an echelon preparing to embark for overseas. As they come up the gangway, and seeing them as they line the decks, we've certainly got New Zealand's answer to the call from the old country. This broadcasting unit of ours, by the way, will be attached to the New Zealand Expeditionary Force in the field. And in the days that lie ahead, we hope to be able to bring you news of your men, wherever they may be stationed. The mobile broadcasting units recorded eyewitness accounts of action and campaigns that the New Zealand forces were involved in, they also recorded talks by troops and interviewed them about their part in the war, whether that was in action or some other more mundane but vital work, like working in an army bakery or in the postal unit. But the recordings that they became best known for, the voices in the air that New Zealand radio listeners truly valued during the war, were the short messages home that thousands of New Zealand men and a few women, there are a few nurses in the recordings as well, these were New Zealanders who were in the Army and also serving in the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force, they got to record these brief messages home with the guys from the mobile unit. So here's an example of these. Um, they were recorded on disc, as, um, as I mentioned, and the discs then had to be, because this wasn't time-sensitive material particularly, had to be sent back to Wellington from overseas. They were then uh, edited in Wellington into a pro weekly programme called With the Boys Overseas, and that really became appointment listening for New Zealand homes on Sunday nights throughout the war. In fact, it was so popular they repeated it again on Tuesday nights. So we'll listen to an example. This is a fairly typical example. Most of the, the messages the guys sent were fairly generic. They were, had to be pretty formulaic. So this is a group of New Zealanders who are serving in the RAF in Italy in 1944 near Casino. First we hear Arch Curry of the Mobile Broadcasting Unit and then the messages. Calling New Zealand now are New Zealanders in a Spitfire wing in Italy. An hour ago, we drove down from Div headquarters to this aerodrome. The division is in operations in the casino area, and it will give you some idea of the close air support now available to the ground forces to realize that only a few miles from the forward positions, immediate and constant protective patrol is carried out by the RAF. And New Zealanders on the ground are supported by New Zealanders in the air. In the next few weeks, you will be hearing from them from many parts of southern Italy. Meantime, here are greetings from just six of the airmen who happen at the moment to be on the forward drone in close support to the divisional operations. And first call home is to Sentry Hill, New Plymouth. Here's Leighton Montgomery. Hello, Mum and Dad and all the family at Sentry Hill. Hope you're all in the best of health. I am very fit and happy at present. Love to you all and the town folks. Cheerio for now, Leighton. Now to Auckland, Maury Cooper to Devonport. Hello, Mother, Dad, Joyce and Cleon. Pleased to be able to say a few words to you. I've just finished my ops. Not much hope of seeing John, though. We'll be home just as soon as I can make it. Your letters are coming through every four weeks or so. Sometimes better than others, but they arrive, and that's the main thing. I've sent you some kid gloves and hope you like them. It must be all for now. Cheerio. Lots of love. Maury. The next call is to North Otago, from Bob Aubrey. Hello, Marion and Ian. I hope you are both well. I was glad to hear Ian got his parcel. I am fit and well. 
All my love to you both. Also to Matchwood and Berwyn. Cheerio. And just down, or up is it, to Timaru. Uh, Pat Newman. Hello, Mum and family. I am fit and well. Met Bill on leave. He is looking fine. Cheerio to Dickie, Derek and uh, wee Peter. Love to all at home. Pat. And now, back to North Island, from said young calling bulls. Hello, Mum and Dad, and all at home. Hope you are in the pink. I'm very well and am enjoying life. Regards to all the folks in bulls. Cheerio and love. And last call from this wing is to Mosgiel from Alan Condon. Uh, hello, Mum and Dad. This is Alan here. I hope you're all in the best of health. I'm okay. All the best to Kevin and Barbara and to you, dear, you in Wellington. Cheerio for now. Love, Alan. <coughs> Cheerio, New Zealand, from the Spitfire Wing. And we remind you again that in the next few weeks you will be hearing from quite a number of New Zealanders who are present in operations in southern Italy. So there's around 1,600 of the discs uh, recorded by the mobile units overseas during World War II that survive today in the RNZ Sound Archives at Nataonga Sound and Vision. Um, Nataonga is currently digitising these recordings. I've been fortunate enough to receive funding from the Judith Binney Trust and from the New Zealand History Research Fund to research and write about these recordings. Um, as part of that, I'm, I'm working with Nataonga to enhance the existing descriptions of their contents and verify the identities of the hundreds of New Zealanders whose voices are heard on them. This means eventually, one day, the digitised recordings will be able to be listened to online and the voices of New Zealanders at war will be more easily discovered and heard by their descendants. I'm interested in the response to the mobile units recordings from the home front, from New Zealanders and radio audiences. What did they think of them? So far, I've learned that the broadcasting service was quite literally overwhelmed by demand from the public to hear more messages, to hear more of those voices in the air. The, they wanted to have them repeated. They wanted to know when their son or husband or loved one was going to be recorded, when, whether he was going to be broadcast again if they missed it. Māori listeners were particularly keen to hear recordings of their men, and the mobile units responded to this demand by not only recording messages from the men of the Māori battalion, but also by recording concerts from them. And I'll end tonight with one of these recordings. This was the mobile unit in Egypt in 1942. We first hear Norman Johnston of the mobile unit opening the broadcast and describing the scene. Then there's a mihi from Private Tiaki Tapiri of Ohinimutu. And finally, we hear the Waiata e Parera, which is sung by the men of B Company of the Māori Battalion. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we are attending an open-air concert in the bivouac lines of a Māori Battalion somewhere in the desert. It is hard to describe in words how impressive this ceremony is. We can see the rest of the battalion, those who are not performing, all seated round in the sand, and uh, the parties that are going to sing are on what might be called the stage, but it isn't really, it's just a bit of sloping ground. The only illumination we have is one hurricane lantern, and I can see the leader of the first party holding it up to get his words. Well, now the first item you're going to hear tonight is Teopi Tuatahi, with an introduction by Private Tapiri. So, without further ado, we'll get on with the concert. Equima, Ekuruma, Epama, Ehaima, Ehinama, Etamama, Tamarikima, Erawa, Matatua, Enako Tukatua. 
like that, I really recommend you visit the Māori Battalion website, which is maoribattalion.org.nz. It has many of the mobile units' recordings of those men available to listen to online, and a lot of them have been transcribed as well. Um, you could also search on Nātaonga Sound and Visions website. Uh, there's quite a few recordings online there. Um, and if you want to know more generally, I'm always happy for people to get in touch with me. Um, I have a blog about my research project into the World War II recordings, which is worldwarvoices.wordpress.com. So at this point, um, I would just again like to say thank you to all of these people who made um, tonight possible, and I'm happy to take any questions. Ngamihi, uh, Sarah, thank you. We are here at the National Library marking 100 years of radio in Aotearoa. You've just heard historian Sarah Johnston choose some golden moments from the early years. I'm Kim Hill, taking questions from the audience. Right, can I have a hand up, please, and a question for Sarah? It never occurred to me that until 1935, it was all live, Sarah extraordinary to think about and so bold right i know and it's it's something that that yeah never occurs to anyone because um so often you know people will now in the era of um papers past again thank you national library um you know people search for great grandmother's name in papers past they find that she was broadcast and they can point to it they can see in black and white on you know 6 30 p.m on the 20th of november in 19 31, she was singing on 2YA in Wellington, and where is the recording, please? And she just went into a studio and sang, and it went out into the ether, and it's still somewhere out in space. Interesting, isn't it? Because mm. we think that live radio is so modern, but actually it's not at all. Yes, and I know when the ability to start using pre-recorded material came in, there was some concern that that sort of um, live vitality might might be lost. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And probably was for a while. Yes, although 
the discs that they used for recording were expensive, um, you know, and we were coming out of the Depression and then we had the war, and so I think most radio was still live for quite some time until magnetic tape came in in the 1950s, which then allowed you to erase it and reuse it and reuse it and reuse it, and so, yeah. Cost has always been a factor in broadcasting. It was interesting to hear Michael Joseph Savage say about radio what we've heard people say about the internet, that it's going to connect everybody and, you know, democratise everything and lead us into this fabulous new era. And that's something... The parallels are, are really quite strong. I was thinking about that, about how in the beginning, you know, the early adopters of radio were the geeks... They were the people who were techie and could build their own little set. And it was, you know, I'm old enough to remember the start of the internet and I can remember, you know, the dial-up signal and, and it was, you know, this weird thing. You could suddenly look at something, a page somebody in America had put on the, your computer and then suddenly, you know, within, within a matter of years it becomes absolutely essential to, to life and that was the same with radio. We were we were quite early adopters, right? I think you mentioned that the the first radio was what New York. In uh, yes, so, so there were stations in the, in the United States, um, and yes, well, Radio Dunedin was was very early, and they you know amazingly have have stayed on the air. There's, um, I think there is a station in the states that had also that started around the same time and is still on the air, but there's there's not many. The turnover is quite high. And were we one of the earliest countries to follow in the footsteps of the States? Yes. Well, I think we were... It was interesting in that we did the... the we took the BBC model and the non, had the non-commercial network, but then the government also thought... So we looked at places like the States and saw the huge amounts of money that could be made through commercial radio and thought, well, we'll have a piece of that action. And so by the government controlling commercial radio for many years, although, you know, it's looked on as being, um, you know, problematic and that it hampered innovation, et cetera, et cetera, but it also meant that they had this vast pot of money that they used to set up the National Orchestra, for example, and do things like that. So it, it did enrich New Zealand's cultural life, having the government with access to this money. Although, you know, Radio Hauraki, when it began in the 1960s, was obviously, you know, the time had come well and truly for some, some fresh ideas. Some rock and roll rebellion. Exactly. In that case. Any questions? Where's Max Cry when he needs it? The question is, when the soldiers said cheerio, did they mean hello, goodbye, or what was the other one? How the hell are you? I don't know. Do you know, Sarah? I, it's fascinating. When I started listening to, to the recordings during the war, I, the same question crossed my mind. And it definitely was an all-purpose sort of greeting. They used it to, to say hello. It just, it just was an acknowledgement almost. But yes, definitely. You hear them using it where we would have said hello. They use it when they're saying goodbye. They just send a cheerio. It just means, hi, how are you? I'm thinking of you. Yeah. They're amazingly... Um stiff those chaps aren't they hello mum and dad well bless them they all had because they 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 were tightly scripted presumably because they couldn't give away where they were absolutely everything had to be passed by a military census so um they had 
little pieces of paper where they had to write down their name, their hometown, who they were going to call, and their message. And that had to be checked because you didn't want anyone saying, oh, we're about to, you know, attack Casino, and, you know, Germany's listening in kind of thing. So, yes, so all those messages are very formulaic, and they're all... Presumably, they were all meant to be upbeat and morale boosting. We're Except for that last one we heard where he said, Hello, Mum and Dad, I'm okay. And you think, Oh, no, he's only okay. And the war. Um, there's another question. Yes, sir. That's interesting. Yes, the first part of the question is that the people who were delivering their messages uh, didn't seem to be the lower orders the lower ranks, they seem to be the uniformed officers. And secondly, when the uh, Maori Battalion gave greetings back, as I presume they did, was it in Tereo and was it translated? And I think the gentleman means, how did we know that they weren't German spies? That's what you're really saying, sir. I understand. Yes. No, good, both good questions. Um, the chaps in that particular recording may have all been officers, but definitely um, there was a really broad cross-section. There are interviews with guys who are drivers, there are guys who are infantry, There's, it's definitely not just officers, so it's um, quite a broad cross-section of New Zealanders that you hear in these recordings. Um, and as, yes, everything had to be passed by a censor, including material in te reo Māori, so what the, it was a military censor who did all this, so what they would do was they would get an officer from the Māori battalion to check their material. Um, and in particular, I think, um, Charles Bennett, who eventually became the um, commanding officer of the Māori battalion, and conveniently, before the war, he'd been a broadcaster as well, so he... Um, had a very fine-tuned ear for what was suitable for radio and also as a military officer he could tell what was what was suitable from a military perspective in terms of, of censorship. Yeah. Do you think, Sarah, in the early days of the radio, you know, there were 500 people with a licence and then there were 1,200 people, was it a status symbol similar to a television? Like, would people go round and listen? Uh, judging by the advertising that you see in newspapers um, from that era, I think it quickly became something like that. I mean, it was it was quite an expensive item, um, and I think it would be, you know, who's got this new thing? Um, initially, of course, as we heard in, in the um, Lionel Slade, you know, people used to laugh at the at the geeks initially saying that they could get music from out of the air, you know, what a preposterous thing. But once it was established and once, you know, the, the blogs next door had one, I'm sure the, it was seen as, a, as something that you must have because, goodness, your children could be missing out. The question is the words we heard there and the words that people heard coming out of their radios during the war were maybe the last words that they ever heard those individuals say. You'll be looking at that, obviously, in your research. Yes. So initially, so the discs that were sent back to New Zealand could take weeks, and in some occasions they even took months to get back to New Zealand. And so the first job, um, when they did get back to New Zealand, was someone had to go through the list of the men who'd been recorded on the discs and cross-check that with casualty lists of men who'd been killed or were missing in action, which they would do um, at the the army headquarters so that was a very grim task um 
Most of the time, if a man had been killed or was missing in action, his, record, his message would not be broadcast. But I have heard of examples, I've been told um, by families of examples, and I've also read in newspapers from the time when the family would actually request that a man's recording was played because they'd like his friends elsewhere to be able to hear his message. Um, if most of the time the, the recording wasn't played, the family would be notified by the broadcasting service. They may have even received a letter from the man himself because it had been you know, several months earlier before his demise saying, oh, I was recorded, listen out for me on Sunday nights. So the broadcasting service would write to them and say, you know, we're sorry for your loss. Did you know your loved one had recorded a message? You can go into your local radio station and we will play it for you in private. And so I have seen correspondence where the broadcasting service here in Wellington is sending discs off to New Plymouth or wherever for them to play to um, bereaved families. Yeah. We have time for one more question. This is a question about the future of radio, really. We are not, we don't get radio anymore. Uh, the question has said that this FM network's been closed down around the world. We have a computer, not a radio. Is, what's the future hold? Well, I can only speak to that as a, as a Christchurch resident. And um, 10, 11 years ago, radio was what we listened to after the earthquakes. Your phone would run out of juice, there was no power. You know, radio was an absolute lifeline for Christchurch people. And I, I like to think that radio will continue to be broadcast on the air as well as obviously online. I mean, the, the power for the connection and the interaction is fantastic on, online. But there is something about... To me, just having those voices coming out of the air while you're doing other things, while you're driving, while you're working, um, you don't have to be sitting looking at a screen to enjoy that. And, um, yeah, that's, to me, yeah, let's hope the voices in the air continue. And on that note, uh, please thank Sarah Johnston for her <laughs> observations. Thank you, Sarah, for uh, marking 100 years of radio in Aotearoa. Thank you for coming to the National Library to Market with us. I'm Kim Hill. Good night. <laughs>